Well, how do you end a book? Especially when you think about a book like the book of Acts. Acts began with Luke writing to Theophilus, explaining to him that in his first writing, which we possess as the Gospel of Luke, that Luke recorded all that Jesus began to do and teach, giving the implication that though Jesus had died and risen from the dead and ascended back to the Father, that Jesus was continuing to do his work. And the rest of that book of Acts is all showing us that work that Jesus accomplished and was revealing to us what was God was going to do through his son, though he was on the throne in heaven and reigning over all heaven and earth. These final chapters in particular in the book of Acts have been showing us pictures of the mission. Our series on this back end has been called to the ends of the earth. We've been looking at the apostle Paul and all that he's been doing for the mission. We've seen the problems that he's encountered, the solution and how he was going about the mission. You might remember that we saw last week the problem was declared in Acts chapter 26 and verse 18 that all people are under in darkness and under the power of Satan. And Paul is going about reversing that by proclaiming the gospel, shining the light of the gospel into those eyes that are darkened and under the power of Satan. And so that's what Paul has explained in these various trials that he has stood before as he has been uh, falsely charged of causing all kinds of problems and bringing Gentiles into the temple and all sorts of things to which the Apostle Paul in each stage of his defense has said, I'm just simply proclaiming the gospel and it's because of my hope in the resurrection that I stand on trial this day. You might remember as we looked at last week that we have uh, Festus who has uh, been very determined to want to hand Paul over to the Jews. He's newly been crowned as the governor of, of Judea and wants to do the Jews a favor, but Paul cannot go back to Jerusalem because if he makes that trip back, the Jews have made a, a pact that they are going to kill him. And so because of that, the, the apostle Paul has appealed to Caesar. And that sets up where we're going to begin in Acts chapter 27 as the Apostle Paul now is going to make this journey to Rome. And as I, I've noted as we've gone through Acts, that this again is not just geography tests that you would, you know, pull out the map on your Bible and say, well, I know where these crazy towns are and yay us that we've been able to, to do geography tonight. But that there is a point of what is being told to us. And, and as was revealed in chapters 25 and 26, the problem is, People cannot see, and so the goal is to bring them light. And I believe that these final two chapters are to show the response to that light, because you would think that if you came to people and said, I have light, don't you want to see, that you would have a 100% answer, yes, we would like to see. And these last two chapters are going to show why people reject the light and why they do not see. And so that is with the title of the lesson tonight, Seeing But Not Seen. The first eight verses of Acts chapter 27 uh, is, is where we're at. And, and it begins in verse 1 by noting that uh, it is time to set sail for Italy. Verse 1 says that Paul and some of the other prisoners are handed over to a particular centurion. They board the ship and off they go, uh, leaving Caesarea, and they are now on their way uh, to Italy. 
But there's a little bit of a problem that arises. You'll notice in, in verse 9 that it says, Now, much time had passed, and the voyage was already dangerous. And, to, and, and so it says there that he, since there was the day of atonement being already over, Paul gave his advice and told them, Men, I can see that this voyage is headed toward disaster and heavy loss. Not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid attention to the captain and the owner of the ship rather than what Paul had to say. Now, again, this is setting up ultimately a spiritual picture and a spiritual struggle. What is unfolding here in chapter 27 is very much about the authority of Paul and who Paul represents. You are presented an interesting scene that verse 9 reveals that because of what has happened in their early sailings, they are struggling with time to get to Italy. They are going slower than they want to go. And it is coming to a point now where they would encounter bad weather because of the time of the year. And so that's what verse 8 is saying is that through great difficulty, the wind is against them. which should have gone fast has taken many days. And so finally now in verse 9, Paul stands up and he says, we've got a problem. We are headed for disaster. And the disaster is not only of cargo, it's also of ship, and it's also of lives. We should stop here. And so what you're noting is that there is a struggle here, because notice what we are told in verse 11. The centurion paid attention to the captain and the owner of the ship rather than Paul. I think this is interesting because this really sets up what the whole cosmic struggle is. It really is the picture of the book of Acts. It's the picture really of all humanity is here is this point that if you go on your present path, you are certainly doomed. But if you will listen to me, here is the truth and here is the way for us to live. And what's the response? Not listen, Paul. <laughs> we're not going to listen to anything that he has to say. Instead, we're going to continue what we're doing. We're going to continue our own path. We're going to blaze that trail and we are going to make it. And Paul is certain, certainly wrong. And so that's why you see all the details of what happens next. That Paul has put himself forward and saying, I have the authority of God. We should not go forward. You need to listen to what I have to say. And Verse 13, they have a favorable day, so they think, let's go ahead and go. And so they sail along the, the, the shore of Crete. But very quickly, everything completely unravels all along the way. You'll notice in verse 18, it says they start throwing the cargo overboard. In verse 19, they throw the ship's tackle overboard. And you will notice the words of verse 20, because I think they were very important. It says at the very end of verse 20, Finally, all hope was fading that we would be saved. And that sets up what's, what's going on here is this picture. Here is this picture of Paul says, now here's what you need to do. They completely ignore it. Now you have 
Everything going completely wrong. Verse 18, the ship is being severely battered around and they're jettisoning the cargo, which that's why the ship is going, is to make all this money. And all the cargo there, it goes overboard. The next day, some of the important things, the tackle, that's all going overboard. We're now at verse 20 and it goes, we do not think we're going to live. That sets the tone of what happens. Verse 21, since we'd been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, you should have followed my advice to not sail from Crete to sustain this damage and loss. Now, it is important to catch that what the Apostle Paul is not doing is saying, Nanny, 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 you should have listened to me. See, I was right all along. I told you many days ago that it was going to be a whole loss and you should have listened, but you didn't listen. So now we're all in this, this mess. That's not the idea of what's happening here. But you are getting this attempt to convince them that you have somebody in your midst that is speaking God's truth. And he's now coming in and validating that and saying, I told you the truth. In fact, I told you the truth to such a degree that you should have listened to me because you can rest the fate of your life on the very words of Paul. That's what chapter 7, 27 is drawing out. Verse 22, he says, but now I urge you to take courage because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only the ship for last night, an angel of God uh, that I belong to and served stood by me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. It is necessary for you to appear before Caesar. And indeed, God has graciously given all those who are sailing with you. So take courage, men, because I believe God, that it is that it will be just the way it was told to me. But we have to run aground on some island. You see what Paul said? Up? Paul says, God told me and you didn't listen. Now God told me that we're not going to die, but you need to listen to what I'm going to say. And so he's really setting up all of that, that before them, that they would understand who is in their midst. Do you understand who Paul is and that you would ultimately listen to what he has to say and follow exactly what he says, which you will notice that's exactly becomes the tension of chapter 27 is that as they begin to fear that they're going to run aground and they're seeing that the, the ship is in danger, you have some of the men in verse, in verse 30 who are trying to escape from the ship. They start rolling down a skiff that they're going to going to have. They even had lifeboats back in those days. And this lifeboat has been banging up against the ship that's about to get destroyed. And they go, let's let it down. And they start to escape. And Paul stops them and says in, in verse 31, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And here's what's interesting. Notice what the soldiers do. Very next line. They cut the lifeboat and let it go. So we went from starting the trip, ah, Paul, he doesn't know anything. You know, here's this tent maker trying to tell us how to sail. And, you know, we, we know what we're doing out here too. Now when Paul speaks, they all go, okay. <laughs> if we're going to survive, you need to all stay on this ship and not get in that skiff. And they believe him and are willing to do that. And notice what happens when you jump all the way down to verse 44, after the ship runs aground and breaks apart, and it looks like everybody's in trouble and doom. But verse 44 says, the rest of the, who were to follow some on the planks and some on the debris of the ship 
but in this way, everyone safely reached the shore. And here's this implied parenthetical, just like God said, just like God said, is that this is putting forward that in the midst of a hopeless journey, if you would listen to the words of Paul, you can be saved. If you would listen to the words of Paul, disaster would be avoided. And that continues its way on into what happens in, in, in chapter 28. You will notice in chapter 28, again, we have these really weird scenes that are recorded for us. And if you've read them before, you're like, why are all these strange declarations happening? But they are communicating that same point. In the first six verses, you have them uh, landing on... On an island called called Malta, verse two, the people there that lived there were, were certainly showing them great kindness and grace. Paul happens to be picking up some wood to be able to have a fire, and a viper comes out and, and, and strikes him on the hand. And I love that verse verse four. They all look at that and go, "Well, surely he is a murderer and a criminal because justice is catching up to him at this point. Uh, clearly, this guy is, is is a problem." But as they sit there and watch him, verse five says he suffered no harm. I love verse six. And they expected that he would begin to swell up or suddenly drop dead. I just try to visualize the fires. Everybody's just sitting there watching Paul. You know, is he dead yet? <laughs> the viper just got you. Is he keeled over yet? No, not yet. And notice why this is recorded. At the end of verse 6, it says, And after they waited a long time and saw nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds. And now they say, Actually, he's not a criminal. And they go, he must be a God. This now provides an opportunity for Paul to talk to the locals on the land and go, no, no, I'm not a criminal, even though I'm being shipped with all of the other prisoners all the way from Caesarea to Rome. No, I'm somebody that you can listen to. I'm somebody that can be trusted. I'm somebody that can be believed in. You can listen to my word. And that's the next paragraph as well. In verse seven, that now Paul has an opportunity to go about healing. And we read of this man named Publius. And it says that in verse eight, that his father was in bed suffering from a fever and dysentery. And it says in verse eight that Paul went in and was praying and laying his hands on him and he healed him. Verse nine, and those who were on the island who had diseases and they came and they were healed and they heaped many honors on us. That sound familiar? Well, it reminds you of Jesus where people, when Jesus comes into a town and everybody starts bringing all the sick people so that he can heal them. It reminds you of when Peter was, was walking and everybody's coming and bringing so that he can heal people. Paul has had that same, same experience as well as, as he'd come into town and people would just bring healing. You're having a reversal picture happen of trying to get people to grasp. Do you understand who Paul is and what he says is the, the, the truth that you can build your life on. And that brings us into them finally making it in, into Rome. And Paul is put in a very uh, positive situation uh, that we are told there in, in, in uh, verse uh, 21, it's, oh, verse, excuse me, verse 17, that he's now under this house arrest. And so here he is, and he is gathering people to him so that they can listen to him and he can talk to them. You even see that uh, earlier on as he's taking courage and thanking God as he comes into Rome. And verse 16 says, he's allowed to live by himself with a soldier uh, who guarded him. And, and I read that and I think, 
I, can you imagine what those conversations looked like as Paul is chained to this one soldier and what that probably was about? You know, I'm sure they talked about Roman baseball and things like that. You know he's taking opportunities here to speak to anybody who comes in. And so as he's in Rome, don't visualize him as being in a prison, but under a house arrest so that people can freely come in and, and be with him. But he has a very big concern. And you'll notice uh, in, ver- in verse uh, 19 or verse 18, Hester, he's called all the leaders of the Jews to come in. You'll notice he says there that in brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or customs of our ancestors, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And they examined me and they wanted to release me since there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. Because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, even though I had no charge to bring against my people. For this reason, I asked to see you and speak to you. In fact, it is for the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Now, this is a really interesting scene that is the first thing Paul does is he gathers the Jewish leaders of Rome and he basically describes why he's in Rome. And it's almost like defense part four. Let me tell you, it's because of my hope in the resurrection. That's why I'm here. And you can tell that he's concerned that news about him has traveled all the way to Rome and We know what happened with the Jewish leaders in Asia and the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And now he's come to Rome and he's expecting that this is all going to go badly. And I want you to see that he's still trying to clear up any misunderstanding. We looked at that a few lessons ago. And here again, he goes, let me tell you why I'm here. It's not because I did anything wrong. I did not break the law. I've lived honorably before God. But it's ultimately because they are against me. And he says there in verse 19, I was about to be set free, but the Jews objected. And that's why I had to appeal to Caesar. That's why I'm here. Now, I think this is so important because he's continuing to show his desire to not have any obstacle uh, stand in the way of proclaiming the gospel while he's in Rome. I want to clear up any misunderstanding that there might be. But listen to verse 21. And then they said to him, we have not received any letters about you from Judea. None of the brothers have come and reported or spoken anything evil about you. But we want to hear what your views are, since we know that people everywhere are speaking against this sect. So Paul has presented an interesting opportunity. He kind of lays it all out and goes, you know, whatever you've heard is not true. And they go, we haven't heard anything. (laughs) We have received no letters from Judea. There is nobody that's come from Judea that has informed us anything about you. So whatever you've got going on, we don't know anything about it. They say, but there is this one thing we've heard. And that's what's so interesting. Verse 22, we know that people everywhere are speaking against this sect. So they've heard the uproar. It's not presently in Rome to them, but they have heard how the Jews and the Jewish leaders are against Christianity. And so they say, we would kind of like for you to explain this. We'd like to hear more about what is going on and why everybody's in an uproar about this. Perfect opportunity for Paul, right? And so you'll notice in verse 23, it says, after arranging a day, many came to him at his, at his lodging. And from dusk to dawn, he expounded and testified 
about the word of, of God or about the kingdom of God. He tried to persuade them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. Some were persuaded by what he said, but others did not believe. And I love the, the picture that's given here. So they set up a day. Here comes all the Jewish leaders. All right, let's have a talk about what I'm doing, why I'm here. And he says quite simply uh, in verse 23, from dawn to dusk, he expounded and testified about the kingdom of God and tried to persuade them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. Now, I think this is an important observation for us to make here as we, we look at what's happening. Is here that have come to hear this. And what are all the different ways Paul could have tried to persuade these people? Are you surprised that Paul does not sit down and go, let me show you this miracle. Boom. All right, believe me, right? <laughs> One of the things that I think is always fascinating to see is that miracles do not have the intent to say, I'm going to make you a believer. Watch this. Notice the way that faith was going to come. I'm going to expound the scriptures to you. I'm going to speak about the kingdom of God. I am going to start with the law of Moses and go through the prophets. And through the law of Moses, I'm going to explain Jesus. And through the prophets, I'm going to explain Jesus. That is the means that is given here. Is that that's the, the way that we are going to co communicate with people and talk to them. And now I want you to notice what happens. In verse 24, it says, and everybody was persuaded. You ask, why are some persuaded and some don't? I mean, he, he goes through, you can just imagine, would, you, would that have just been a great class that day? The Apostle Paul tracing through the law of Moses and the prophets and saying, let me show you Jesus. And you just sit there and listen to him go through that. And some are persuaded and some are not. Why are some not persuaded? What is the problem? And I want you to listen to what Paul then says and what the text says. Verse 25 Disagreeing among themselves, they begin to leave after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah when he said, Go to these people and say, You will always be listening, but never understanding. And you will always be looking, but never perceiving. For the hearts of these people have grown callous, the ears are hard of hearing. And they have shut their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, for they will listen. I want you to notice, what does Paul say is the problem? I want you to notice that Paul does not say, well, the problem is with the word. You know, we just need to jazz the word up, make the gospel a little bit better, more entertaining, more fun. He doesn't say it's the message. It's not the word. It's not the delivery. He doesn't say, you know, I guess I did a really bad job explaining it. Would you come back tomorrow and I'll try again? I want you to see that the explanation that he gives is the problem is with the people. He says, the problem is they're going to see and they're going to hear, but they're never going to understand. They're just going to keep seeing and keep seeing, but never get it. They're going to keep hearing and keep hearing, but never get it. 
Well, why? Why are they going to keep seeing and not get it? Why are they going to keep hearing and not get it? Is again, the, the, Paul doesn't know how to teach the Bible very well. He's not very good at this job. He needs to quit not being an apostle anymore. Now, notice the text tells us exactly what the problem is. Even though verse 26, it says they will always be listening and they will always be looking, but never understanding and never perceiving. Look at verse 27. Here's the reason why. Their hearts are callous. The problem's not the word. The problem wasn't with the presentation of the word. The problem's not with the gospel or the delivery of the gospel. The problem, he says there in verse 27, is that their hearts have grown callous. And notice it says in verse 27 that their ears are hard of hearing And they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. Here's the whole picture. Here's the problem. The problem is people do not want to see. Isn't that a fascinating answer that God gives? Here's Paul, and he's proclaiming, proclaiming, he's teaching about the kingdom of God, and he's expounding the scriptures. He doesn't use miracles, no tricks, nothing like that. Just, here's the word of God, here's what it says, let me tell you about Jesus. And some of them are persuaded, and some of them are not. And here's the end of the book. This is how it all comes to its grand conclusion, is to say, guess what's going to happen? There are going to be people whose hearts are callous by choice. There's going to be people who their ears are closed by choice and their eyes are shut by choice. Because notice the rest of what it says is God is ready to heal them if they would see and turn. The problem is not on God's end. The problem is on their end. And friends, that is the universal problem of the scriptures. In fact, If you think about Isaiah 53, a text that we know very well being messianic and pointing to Christ, remember a key statement, a key question is made in the midst of talking about what this suffering servant is going to do. And here's the question, who's believed our message? And when you read the context of Isaiah, the answer is not everybody. The answer is nobody. Nobody's going to believe this message. Nobody's going to see the arm of the Lord revealed. They're not going to believe what God is about to do. And that's how that all sets up in Isaiah 53. And all of that discussion about Christ and being uh, like a root out of dry ground and coming for our transgressions. The whole question begins with who is going to believe this? You might remember that it was this passage that was quoted to stated to Isaiah by God. Remember, after you have Isaiah with the famous, here I am, send me. And God says, okay, I'm going to send you to the people. And they're not going to listen. Why? And then you have this. Because seeing, they're not going to see. And hearing, they're not going to hear. Because their eyes are closed. Their ears are shut. Their, their hearts are callous. And if it wasn't that way, I could, they would turn and I would heal them. This has always been the message. I love this picture that Jesus has of this in John 6. This might be my favorite part of the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, 
You have in verse 41 of chapter 6, it reads there, Therefore the Jews started grumbling about him, speaking of Jesus, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Sounds like a legitimate concern. Uh, we know his parents, we know his upbringing, we know who he is. How can he possibly say that he's come down from heaven? I want you to see how Jesus responds to this. What would we probably do? Okay, let me figure out how to say that in a better way. Let me see if I can simplify that. Let me see if I can get it on a, on a better level for here, Watch what Jesus answers. He says, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me. Unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. <laughs> what did you say? Jesus just made that way worse. <laughs> uh, you need to stop complaining about me. The reason why you're grumbling about me saying that I'm the bread of life is because you have not been drawn by the father. Because no one can come to me unless the father draws him. And now notice how Jesus identifies the problem. Verse 45. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Now catch this. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the father comes to me. Are you struck by the word Everyone. Don't grumble among yourselves. You can't come to me unless the Father draws you. Well, how's the Father drawing you? Well, here's what was written in the prophets. They'll all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to Christ. Which says something, I think, that is very bold by Jesus. If a person then has not come to Jesus, what has happened? They have not listened to or learned from the Father. That's what Jesus just said. That's why he made things so much worse. They're gro- how we know your parents? We, we, how could you say you're from heaven? Oh no, don't complain among yourselves. Clearly you haven't learned from God. <laughs> you, you haven't been listening to God. You haven't heard what he had to say to you. You clearly don't know this thing and that's why you don't see me. If you did, then you would have come to me. You would have been called and come and listen to what I had to say. And so it is an amazing image that is given to us. And this is what Isaiah was saying. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. Why are people not persuaded? Because they have closed their ears, they have closed their eyes, and they have closed their hearts. And that's exactly what Jesus said when he was walking around. The reason you don't believe what I have to say is because your ears are closed and your eyes are closed and your heart is closed. You don't know what God has to say and that's why you're not listening. This, I think, becomes a very important picture for us and we talk about how this book ends and what that means for us. First thing I want to draw as, a, as a, an idea and a conclusion about this. I have always for most of my life felt like the book of Acts just seems like a hard stop, right? 
Uh, we're going along with the Apostle Paul. He's got to stand before Caesar, and we do not get any of that information. It just simply tells us that for two years, in verse 30, he stays in this house, welcoming all those who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. Why is this sudden stop here? What is the book trying to tell us, except the mission hasn't ended? Luke wrote that this is in the gospel all about what Jesus began to do and teach. The book of Acts is recording what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. And he is still at work and the mission is still going on so that we would also proclaim the kingdom of God and be teaching of the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. The biggest thing that we need to do is to show people Jesus. And that has been Paul's mission. That's what he keeps doing chapter after chapter after chapter. And for us, it is our mission as well, is that you see what Paul does, proclaim the kingdom of God and give teachings about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. This sudden stop is, I believe, the writer saying, now it's your turn. Now it is your turn. It is your turn to proclaim the kingdom of God and teach the world about Jesus. It is our turn to go out and and carry out this great mission. And the reason it needs to end on a message like this is so important because when we go out and do that, the message is going to be rejected. There are going to be people who are not persuaded. And there's nothing that has gone wrong when that happens or to state that another way we should not become so discouraged that we stop talking about Jesus and sharing our faith in the gospel just because somebody said no the apostle Paul I believe brilliantly expounded the scriptures about Jesus and it says a bunch of them were not persuaded And Jesus, I believe, would have absolutely perfectly proclaimed himself while going around for three and a half years on the earth. And people said, who is this guy? How can you say you're from heaven? Nothing has gone wrong when the message is rejected. God can heal If people will listen, God is able to open eyes, to open hearts, to open ears. And what we have to do is give people that opportunity by giving them the word. And I suggest to you that there is only one way that we can do this wrong. And the way that we can do this wrong is that we don't actually give them the message. It's the only way we can mess it up. There's no handbook where God comes along and says, now make sure you do not teach my gospel like this. Give them Jesus, show them Jesus. And the only way we get it wrong is if we give them something else. We give them our ideas, our way of thinking, our culture, our think-sos and not the gospel. Only then can we do something wrong. The, the, the book of Acts is trying to define for us in great detail, with great precision, with laser-like focus, that the goal is to proclaim Jesus, to explain the scriptures, proclaim the kingdom of God with all boldness, and recognize 
Some are going to see, and some are not going to see. I'll end with an illustration. I have a a neighbor, and if you've been here a super long time, there was a time where he and his family actually uh, came here for a while as I was working with him and trying to teach him. And he will, we still are friends. He lives across the street. And our conversations often will come about and he'll talk about how terrible things are in the world, how awful things are in society. And I want you to know, I never answer him when he says that by saying, yeah, well, you know, the problem is our governor or the problem is our politics or the problem is our president or the problem is our laws or the pro. I never answer him like that. Here's what I say every single time when he says something like that. I say, this is what happens when you have a world that rejects God. That is my answer every single time. This is what happens with the people that reject God. And I just keep giving him that. It's not about anything else. That We are in this condition because we are a culture that is rejecting God. And things will only get better when we stop rejecting God. And we have to communicate that to people. We have to proclaim Jesus as the solution for the world. The solution for people's lives. Nothing else. We only fail when we don't give people the message. That's when we lose it. But if we will give people the message, then some are going to be persuaded and some are not. And that's why the book just ends. Now what about you? Now you go and you tell people about Jesus and let the results be what the results will be. Because God can only open hearts, only God can open eyes, only God can open ears, only God can change lives. Our job is simply to explain to people the kingdom of God and show them Jesus from the scriptures. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would give us the boldness that we see in the Apostle Paul, boldly proclaiming your kingdom, boldly proclaiming your son. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the wisdom as we use your scriptures and use your word to talk to other people and to teach the world and to teach one another so that we would see more of your glory, more of your mercy and grace, and that we would continue to be a people who would shine as a light in the words that we say and the teachings that we offer, as well as the lives that we live. Lord, I pray that as we see these pictures, we would always listen to your word. We would always believe what you have to say, that we would always follow you with all of our heart and completely entrust our lives into your hands. Lord, help us to be the servants you want us to be and help us to go forward in the world, helping people to see, people to hear, having hearts opened because of the glory of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One of the things that I think is so interesting about chapters 27 and 28 is chapter 27 was all about you should have listened to Paul and it's all framed in terms of shipwrecks. And then you come to chapter 28 and you go, oh wait, it's far bigger than that. You can rest your life on the words of the Apostle Paul, whether it came to about what a ship was going to do to how salvation would come. You can rest your life on the Apostle Paul. And if you need to respond to the invitation that is being offered to you to listen to what Paul had to say, to find your salvation in Jesus, we want you to do that tonight before it's too late. Won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?